Welcome to the Style Free Podcast, where a father and son detail and digress on a wide variety of topics within music, art, family, and culture. Your hosts are Professor Stephen J. Tyson Sr. and Jr., also known as Dad and Papa. In today's episode, we interview Mikel Elam, visual artist and educator, discussing his Philadelphia roots, how he developed his passion for art, the impact traveling the world had on his life, and his tenure as personal assistant for legendary jazz musician Miles Davis. First of all, I just want to tell you how delighted we are for you to be on this podcast, the Style Free Podcast. And uh, I have to say that for those of you who don't know Michael Elam, uh, he's one of the most gifted artists that I've ever encountered. I had the pleasure of meeting Michael, I guess it was about nine years or so ago. And I was doing some research on a presentation I was going to be doing on Miles Davis, the artist. And going through some research material, I came across the name Michael Elam. I said, Michael Elam? Wow. Let me find out about this person. And I did some research and eventually I contacted you and it's just going on from there. And it's been quite an amazing ride. I mean, you are an accomplished artist. You're someone who's received fellowships, uh, artists in residencies. You've studied and traveled the world and with so much to share and so much to give, but also so much to teach many of us, particularly those who've not had the opportunity to travel and are not as sensitized to some of the kinds of issues that you've brought to bear, not only through your art, but also through your words. Your words are very powerful through social media. I think many of us have been touched by your sensitivity and your insight that you've provided. So again, this is quite an honor for us to be able to talk with you. And thank you, uh, thank you for taking the time to do so. Very kind words. Thank you. <laughs> and I just want to make sure I'm pronouncing it. So it's Michael and that's not Mikel or anything. Well, it's Bo. Okay. I okay. know it gets, it gets a little confusing, but... <laughs> I'm mostly called Mikel at this point. In my younger years, everyone called me Michael or Mike or <laughs> even Mikey. So, <laughs> Which do you prefer at this point in your life? Um, It doesn't matter. I answer to Bo. I would say, you know, most people call me Mikel now, but it doesn't matter, really. It's, I'm not that formal about it. <laughs> <laughs> cool, cool. Mikel it is. Mikel. I like Mikel as well. Yeah. <laughs> so... Um, Mikkel, tell us a, a little bit about yourself. Where, where were you born and some of your early experiences uh, in discovering art as your path? Well, I was born in Philadelphia to two really great parents. I have three siblings. I have uh, an older half-brother. Well, I technically have two older brothers and one younger. And uh, so I guess my earliest memory was my father who would spend time doing things with us, showing us stuff when we were like in the, in the early years, four years old, I can remember, five years old. My father's name is Taff William Elam. But I remembered every Sunday, every Saturday and Sunday, I would sit on his lap and watch him draw. And he would draw mostly from newspapers, comic books, whatever was around. And at first, it was just observing him and kind of just having fun. We would, it would somehow happen right after breakfast. And then 
I started to wanted to imitate him as most fathers and sons and mothers and daughters. You start to imitate what they're doing. So I had no idea that I actually, I didn't think that I would turn into an artist at that point. I'm just emulating my dad. So my father passed away when I was eight. He had a massive heart attack right after Thanksgiving and everything sort of radically changed. And I remembered sort of going into a little bit of a shell Mm. and I was an avid reader. I read a lot and I would start to draw, mostly drawing. I don't think there was any pain involved yet. So, but it was just something I did to kind of occupy my mind from all of the things that were changing. Then around fourth grade, I'm in a class where the teacher's teaching us watercolor. And I started to make these watercolors and she responded in an incredibly favorable way. (laughs) And she said, have you done this before? I remember she, I was like, no. And then she started to like sort of monitor everything I was doing every time we had art class. Mm. And uh, so before you know it, I was given bulletin boards to, to uh, you know, that was my first solo show was a bulletin board <laughs> outside <laughs> of my classroom. And, uh, and so then after that, she, if nothing else, whether I had any talent or not, I was just, she gave me confidence there. And uh, so every year I was kind of like the standout guy in art class. Yeah. So that's kind of how it started. But I stand on the shoulder of a lot of giants because, Mm. and I say this because uh, it takes a village to get anywhere. And my memory was after that happened, I had a few people, one very close family friend who's now passed on. She passed on a couple of years ago. She was my mentor. She took me to all these cultural things. My mother had a six week, my, my youngest brother was only six weeks when my father died. So she basically had a young child to deal with. And as I was growing up, because the difference between us is eight years. So she would take me places. She would take me to the art museum. And she sort of pushed me to just be as creative as I could possibly be. And my mother didn't quite understand what was going on. Or she thought it was a phase that would pass but it just kept going. <laughs> and, and what was her name? Doris. Doris Battle. Mm, yeah. Beautiful. beautiful. Shout out yeah. to Doris Battle. Absolutely. Yes. Wonderful, progressive woman who, she introduced me to jazz. She introduced me to all of these things at like a very early age. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And of course, Philadelphia is, is like a mecca for jazz. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, from McCoy Tyner and Sun Ra and the Heath Brothers and yeah. M. Tume. Uh, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. John Coltrane for a period of time. Yeah. You talked about the importance of your mother and the kind of person that she was and how impactful she was. In there was also, I think, spirituality. I'm curious to know how spirituality has informed your life through your mother, through your upbringing, uh, and informed your work as well. Spirituality really does fit into my life. There's, I can't not, I I actually try to deny it at some rebellious points in my earlier years. It's Mm -hmm. just there. Um, Sure, I, the typical thing, 
I went to church every Sunday with my mother. I Bible school, you know, church talks and things like that I had to do. And of course, as a kid, you're like, oh, I don't really want to do this. But, you know, I did. And then uh, I spent the summers in my on my grandparents' farm, and the church was right there on the land, basically. Oh, really? Where was that? Henderson, North Carolina. Okay. And uh, I was very rooted in the church. And then in my teenage years, I was rebellious. I got very involved in the ideas of the civil rights movement and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and then I started to be to, to I don't completely disagree with i haven't changed that much from the idea that so much of christianity is in a way has been whitewashed and so i moved quickly away from that but while my mother was still attending church every you know every sunday and like sometimes during the week mm-hmm. with different you know organizational things that they were doing within the church so she would just say one day you'll come back one day, <laughs> no, it's there. And I would say, yeah, that's going to happen. But um, <laughs> and what was your mom's name? I'm sorry. Uh, Ida. 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 Yes, Ida, of course. Ida Lee Thomas Elam. <laughs> it was very funny. As I got to be like in my early 20s, I would just start calling her Ida, probably because I heard my friend Patrick calling his mother Molly. <laughs> and I'm old enough now. I remember, I remember trying that. Yeah, I tried that with my parents too, and it didn't. It didn't last more than a day. They were like, "I'm dad, and this is mom. That's it." Exactly. Exactly. So anyway, as I got older, I started to find my own ideas about spirituality, and um, in that was that there is some force whether we want to call it God, whether we want to call it a higher consciousness or the divine or, you know, there's a ton of names you can call it, but mm-hmm. I'm aware that there are forces that are greater than me. And that I believe my thought is, is that we're all interconnected, you know, and now science is bringing that closer to home because they're like yeah. saying that all of the trace elements in ourselves is in everything. It's in the, it's in yep. the cosmos. Yes. It's in nature. So we should all be responsible for each other and towards each other, but we're not. Mm-hmm. Because along comes greed and, and domination and all these things to have everything. When it was in the beginning, you know, the... The Garden of Eden is like more of a metaphor, really. It's a metaphor for something where the planet, to me, the planet was this perfect place that provided food and warmth and and a place to sort of grow. And it was all there. And then people decided like, oh, we can make money off of it. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, as they made money, then some people are going to be, you know, the servants and the others are going to be the the, the royalty. And, uh, and that's throughout the world. And so now it's all out of balance. We can see that. I mean, we're experiencing yeah. things, you know, and, and people are still in denial of global warming and, and all of the imbalances on the planet because they've used all the resources in like really horrible ways. So mm-hmm. my spirituality comes from I, I meditate twice a day for 20 minutes. That came out of 
what was first to sort of like help me with a brain injury that I had. And then it just stuck because it's my new level, my new way of praying. And it allows me to go to sort of go really deep within and to realize that I have the great gift to be able to express myself through my art and to get it out there that way. Now, I think everyone can express it, but through the meditation is sometimes where I get the visuals for my art. They just pop into my head. So I do believe that the spirituality of my mother is within me. And she will be, she would probably, if she heard that, I know that would make her smile because I gave her <laughs> so many years of like, what have I done wrong? <laughs> so that was your introduction. Was there music in, in your house as well? I mean, did you hear? Uh... Well, okay. So I had a brother who was like a few years older than me, two years, two and a half years, but enough to make the difference where he had domain of the basement and the basement was <laughs> where him and his friends hung out and they were possibly doing certain things that are almost legal now <laughs> and, uh, in most states. And I re- I was the little brother that just would go down there and sort of get on their nerves because why are you down here? There's nothing for you. But they would play music constantly. And the music was like really, really like good stuff. Like I just knew that I was drawn to the music. And that's where I first heard my first Miles album. Really? And oh, wow. yeah, because they were listening to they were listening to a wide range of things like it could be Stevie Wonder. And then it would go to I remember they were like playing Yes, Close to the Edge. There were like all of these like different, you know, they used to refer to it as head music. And, <laughs> <laughs> but Miles was definitely one of the ones. I mean, I remembered saying, whoa, what is that? And mm. it was the Bitches Brew album. Mm, and that's yeah. where they started because they were like more, I didn't get early, well, I got earlier Miles from Doris. So that would be what she was playing at her house. And or if we went out to listen to jazz, she was always referring to like, you know, John Coltrane and Miles and Sonny Rollins, I think was one of her favorites. But she would she would refer to them. But with my brother, they were more into the kind of fusion. Uh, I remember, you know, Herbie Hancock, all of them were kind of more of what they were interested in first. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. so you got a lot of support for your creativity as far as the arts. Were you ever interested in music? Did you play an instrument or? Okay, so before my father died, I started taking piano lessons. And uh, I think I was five or six years old. And yes, they had plans for me to have music lessons. And unfortunately, On a financial level, after my father passed away, it was one of the things that got pushed to the wayside. Mm, Uh, I went to public school. There was one of these, in some classes, loner instruments and some lessons. Like I only have, I mean, I learned how to sight read music, but I remember there was a shortage. There were a few instruments. So I had the option of maybe a violin, The piano was out because you kind of need a piano at home or something. So anyway, all said and done, no one fought for that for me. So I 
it just fell by the wayside. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'm making an excuse because I believe in like not making excuses about things. There were moments in my life, even like in my, by the time I got to art school that my friends were playing music and I could have picked it up then again, you know, or at least started to try finding a used instrument in a, you know, a thrift store or something and trying to do it myself. But yeah. a little bit of it was I was overwhelmed with the whole trying to pass my classes and <laughs> I didn't push it. So, yeah, yeah. no, I didn't learn. Now, growing up in, in Philadelphia, what was it like in Philadelphia growing up in your neighborhood? Could you uh, describe well, the atmosphere? Uh, okay, so when my father passed away, we were living in one neighborhood and then we moved to a smaller house, which is ironically enough the house I'm living in right now because wow. my mother passed away and she left it to us. So me and my brother, my youngest brother, are actually sharing this house right now. Wow. And oddly enough, before this podcast, I ran into two of my childhood friends <laughs> that one of them who's who I know is birthday and we grew up together. His mother, unfortunately, passed away a couple of years ago, was friends with my mother for 50 years or whatever. Wow. And uh, he bought a house right in the street, down the street from his mother. So in answer to that, to your question is when we moved in, it was mostly white. And then little by little, it turned completely Mm African-American. And um, we were a close knit bunch of friends until I, I would say until after we graduated from high school, we were very close. And then little by little, everybody started to sort of go in their own directions with growing up. But this was always home base. So I always knew I could find them at either Christmas or during the holidays, basically. Yeah. So now along the way, at some point you were encouraged perhaps to attend the University of the Arts with the yeah. idea perhaps of pursuing art as a full-time professional career. What yeah. was your thinking? So I went to a high school called Dobbins. And it was a technical school and I went there for commercial art. Mm -hmm. And what happened was, was that I, you know, I learned as much as I could on a technical level, you know, about like, you know, layouts and design stuff. But my heart was really into the idea of painting and something that was a little bit more in a fine art thing. So I had a teacher, his name was Mr. Bonnie Kemper. And he would like, he was constantly looking at my sketchbooks and saying, you know, I think there's something more going on here with you, you know? Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he helped me to build a portfolio and he actually helped me to kind of think in the direction of applying for art school. Wow, that's really cool. And yeah. shout out to Dawn Staley, another Dobbins graduate. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. I know her. Yes. That's awesome. Yeah. It is a small world. Yeah, it is. So you graduate from University of the Arts. Uh, yeah. You have your BFA. And then for a period of time, you went to the School of Visual Arts. Yeah. And New York, uh, of course, is it's not easy to live in New York. And, and then something happened. There was a turn where you were approached to work with this internationally famous artist uh, or musician artist? <laughs> hmm. uh, yeah, that could have possibly have happened. How, <laughs> what was that about? Can you describe the circumstances that uh, led to that? Yeah. All right. So 
I didn't know my life was going to unfold like that. I felt like I was under control. You know, like I thought like I had a handle on the direction I was going in. But I got to tell you, once I got to New York, my brain sort of went into overload. I almost exploded in a way, I mean, in a good yeah. way, by the way, not a yeah. bad way. There was a sensory overload in the streets going on all the time. So the only problem I hadn't worked out was the money situation. So mm-hmm. I was living in a, a loft at first at 111 Tribeca, which you couldn't even afford to live around there now. And that was a unique experience in its own way. It was like a sublet. I was there, but I was around some luminaries now. Ai Weiwei was one of our roommates. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I mean, at the time, he didn't even speak English. We used to do sign language. We had a communal kitchen and bathroom. And and I, he would say something to me and I was like, I don't know what you're saying. And then he would say, I would say something to him. And it was mostly a lot of smiles and hand sign language, you know. <laughs> you know, I knew that his father was a famous poet. I had heard that. And mm-hmm. he was just in New York trying to figure it out. But the the owner of the the building or the space that we lived in, I think he owned the whole building, but I want to say at least the floor that we were on, mm-hmm. there were all these little quadrants that we all had to live in. And we shared a kitchen and a bath. And he was a famous performance artist. I even have his book over here. What was his name? Sam. T- well, we called him Sam, but his name is really, his last name is Tishing. We called him Sam for short, but it's like a, it's a Chinese name that I can't really completely pronounce. It's a Hasaya Tishing. Wow. And his book is called Out and Now. And what he would do is these like year long sort of performance pieces, like one year, He lived outside on the streets and he wouldn't go indoors. And then another year, he just punched a time clock like every hour. The year (laughs) I was there, he was tied to this woman with a long rope, like a six or eight foot rope. And they would have to do everything together. She was also a performance artist. From I had left before they were untied. You know, I was there (laughs) for about six months. And, and, and it turns out they hated each other. Like they literally hated each other. And, and then maybe they hated each other because of that. But nonetheless, it was just like this really wacky time. I used to see uh, Jean-Michel Basquiat on the streets and, and Keith Haring and all of them. They were wow. all like just sort of floating around. And so there was this feeling of like, you know, yeah, this is something that's really kind of magical. But then there's the money issues. Just a small little thing. And although New York now is so overpriced, you know, it's all relative. If you make a dollar and everything costs two dollars, you're still broke. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so um, what happened was I was taking freelance work. One minute I'm working in a health food store, the next minute, if I could get a freelance job in anything, film, photography, whatever, mm-hmm. I would take it. And it was always kind of like, oh, yeah, somebody needs somebody to lug their stuff around for them. And then eventually I saved a little bit of money. And because I never had a, a lot of money, I wanted to go to Europe. And this is all leading to meeting this particular person. So I went to Europe for about I would say six weeks. I ran out of money in six weeks, but I got to, you know, travel around in a few countries. And when I got back, 
the first thing was I had never been on a plane or anything. And now I have a passport. So mm-hmm. I ended up on working on a film, a feature film, which took me back to Philadelphia. So I worked on this film and then I went back to Europe for two weeks to visit some of the friends that I made. And as you know, well, you, I don't know if you know this, but I have a daughter, you know, she's half Dutch, half American. And mm-hmm. that's how I met her mother was wow. on, on that very first trip. Wow. So anyway, fast forward, I'm back in New York. And now after the second trip to Europe, and I'm just trying to figure out, okay, what am I going to do now to make some, you know, I'm a broke again. And my friend Lydia, her name is Lydia Tracy, but Lydia Tracy Carlston now, because she's married, was an aspiring young model. And she was 19 years old. It, it, she was from Philadelphia. In fact, she grew up in my neighborhood. Wow. So she's like <laughs> almost six feet tall. She lives in New York now. She's actually a part of a big society thing now. Mm-hmm. But back then, so she was an aspiring model. And she goes to Lehigh University and she sees Miles Davis in performance, in concert. And because (laughs) she was 5'11 and pretty beautiful, the band sees her and like waves her back and she goes (laughs) backstage. Mm -hmm. And then somehow or another, Miles sees her and starts a conversation with her. Mm -hmm. And then before you know it, the band's like, oh, Miles took her away from us. (laughs) So she's going back and forth to New York. She's got an agent in New York. And he invites her to the tunnel Mm -hmm. uh, to his first art show or one of his first art shows. Wow. And which is a tunnel was a nightclub. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. So then she goes to it and... After that, they're buddy-buddy, but not not romantically, believe it or not, just buddy, you know. And so what Mm -hmm. happens was, is that he tells her he's looking for an assistant, for which she says, I'll do it. And (laughs) then he kind of told her, no, I need a guy to do it. So Mm -hmm. then she, for some reason, she thought of me and she tells the business team. And I get this phone call saying, Lydia recommended you for this job. Uh, you would be traveling with Miles Davis as his personal assistant. Wow. Now, it wasn't a win-win, believe it or not, for me. Because Mm -hmm. as much as I admired him and recently had seen all of these sort of great, incredible photos of him, uh, you know, so it's like gone even beyond the music. He's now just like this sort of visual icon all Mm -hmm. over the place. Yeah. I um, was a little afraid. (laughs) (laughs) What, why actually, were you why were you afraid? I had read an, an article in Ebony magazine and something about it that they said what made it seem like he was very temperamental. I think they described him with using the word temperamental. Mm, and mm-hmm. it was I had worked with a few kind of film people that were very temperamental. It wasn't directed completely at me because I worked in the art department. So my in my mind's eye, I, I didn't want to be too close to people that were like high maintenance. So here I am thinking I'm going to be like his personal assistant. I'll be the first one that he, you know, yells and screams at. <laughs> and that's what led me to meeting him. That's incredible. Wow. That's amazing. You grow up in Philadelphia and you have an opportunity now to travel to Europe for the first time. What was that experience like, you know, traveling outside of familiar ground? Well, it was 
really amazing. I became very interested in African-American history, especially in my teenage years. And I started to read all of the books, Ralph Ellison and Mm -hmm. James Baldwin and Mm -hmm. Maya Angelou, just so many. And, And what I started to realize, especially when I got to James Baldwin, was this idea that outside of this country was possibly a different way of thinking. I wanted to know what that was. So I started first just looking at European magazines. You know, once there were all these magazine stands and bookstores that had a mm-hmm. magazine section and you could just go and you could kind of absorb the culture in a visual language. And sometimes you get to read a little bit about it. Yeah. And then, of course, art school sort of I had friends who went to Europe even in a sort of one semester or one year abroad, which I couldn't afford to do. And they always came back. And most of them were, you know, I would say they were not black or brown people, Mm -hmm. but they came back with this sort of stories of like this magical place. And I (laughs) felt like I had missed it. So I, you know, when I got out of school, I saved some money and it was the most incredible experience. I did not think about how anyone was perceiving me. Yeah. Um, you know, you start. I started to get into this idea like, oh, yeah, you have to sort of carry yourself in a certain way in the USA or you're going to be under suspicion. Mm-hmm. And I think for that brief period of time of six weeks, I felt literally none of that. Like it was just, wow, this is... Now, you know, uh, years later when I talked to some of the European friends that I've made, they had their own like sort of racial issues. Um, Mostly theirs are sort of dealing with more Arabs. For some reason, Arabs Mm. in Europe have Mm -hmm. seemed to have issues. I've read about Algerians having issues in Paris. Mm, And so I know that racism exists, Mm -hmm. but for some reason as a black man, it didn't seem to be there at the time. Wow. Did that experience in some way, well, evidently it prepared you for the kind of travel that you would be doing with Miles. I mean, you were you were ready and open to take that on because you had already been affected by the positive aspect of traveling abroad. Yeah. Uh, could you say, what was the first experience like now that you're with Miles? He knows that you're an artist. Tell, t- tell us a little bit about that experience, the, the first time you uh, not only encountered Miles, and did the idea of being intimidated or the temperament, was that dispelled on your first trip or experience with Miles abroad? Or Well, <laughs> it's a that? two-parter. <laughs> um, it went right out the window when I met him. <laughs> uh, Miles was... Miles is an extraordinarily charming and intelligent person. And when he turns on that side of him, which I think is the real side of him, I choose Mm -hmm. to believe that that is the real Miles. He is just magical. So when I met him, you know, which was very briefly after a day of interviewing with the business team, you know, I just went to this, he was staying at the Essex hotel Mm -hmm. and I walked in and he was in, he was sitting in a chair drawing and, you know, they took me in, they said, Oh, here's Mikel. And, uh, 
he looks up and he just kind of waves me over. And then I sit down next to him. And then he just passes me a sketchbook and he says, what do you think of this? <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> and what was your response? <laughs> My response, well, you know, I wasn't going to say anything bad if I thought it. <laughs> right. <laughs> but they were great little drawings, to be honest with you. They were like marker drawings. They had very colorful and they had a somewhat of a very um, sort of linear They were like linear drawings that had, they were figurative, but linear. And I would soon come to know that this was a style that he was like really working on a lot. And so there were like a lot of lines, but somehow there was another, he was creating like these figures within it. And so I looked at it and I said, oh, this is good. And then he says, he kind of takes his book back and he's like, starts drawing. And then he looks at me and it's funny because Miles is a mixture of a lot of things. Miles loves music. He loves fashion. He loves art. And they're all huge passions of him. And they're all creatively intermixed. So I had borrowed a jacket from a friend of mine. One of the friends that I grew up with on Woodstock Street who went to New York, became a designer, went to FIT. Mm-hmm. And he made these incredible clothes. And so I said, I have nothing to wear. I was like a jean and t-shirt guy. <laughs> and so then he he said, Well, I'll loan you a jacket. And he gives me this jacket. Well, that was the first thing Miles was like, Where did you get that jacket? <laughs> <laughs> so then I was like, you know, like of course afterwards I'm going, Yay, I yeah. you know, I went around. I mean, Miles asked about my jacket. But then um Oh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Yeah. His name was Pat. Yes. Yes. Pat Bushnell. Yeah. And that and today, ironically tying everything I've just said, his brother is the one that lives down the street, whose birthday is tomorrow, and I just wow. ran into him. happy birthday incredible (laughs) that is amazing so he was knocked out by pat's designs yeah and i remember 1987 i think it was december yeah bh1 yes i'm watching miles there with foley yeah and he's showing some of his artwork that he did with uh, julia trozier yes absolutely and he said pat bush i think he asked you yeah. He's going to make some for the band. Right? Yes. <laughs> and it was and that movie. happened. And it happened. Wow. Tell yeah. us a little bit about Pat, because I think that these are some of the unsung people that yeah. we need to know more about. Yeah. So Pat was one year older than me. His brother, Gene, is about less than a year younger than me. So I was right in the middle. Pat was, first of all, his family, they were all like extraordinarily good looking people. Uh, to the point of intimidation. And Pat was, he was always the smart one. They are all smart. They're all like really intelligent, but he was like really well-read. You know, you could ask him anything. So we all grew up together, but at a certain point, Pat was like, I'm out of here and goes to New York. Well, what I didn't realize as kids, of course, I didn't find this out till later, was that he was actually more familiar with New York than I thought because they actually lived in New York before they moved to Philadelphia. And they're originally from West Virginia, but they went to, his mother and father went to work in New York when they were kids, little kids. And then they ended up on my street. We all met around, I would say, 10 years old. Well, anyway, 
So he went off to New York. He came out of school. Well, I, technically, I graduated at 16, too. But he graduated, I believe, because we were getting skipped. There's a whole thing that they used to do. Uh, if you could test out of your class, you mm-hmm. ended up in the next grade. Mm-hmm. And he left first and went to New York. He never graduated from FIT. I think he only did a year or so or two years at the most. And he came back to Philly with this incredible skill. So he came back and I remembered he was living in the basement of his mother's house right across the street. And so I would hang out with Gene. Me and Gene had started going to concerts. There was a few of us and we were go to the spectrum to all these concerts. And by the way, if I tie that in, I saw Miles's wife, Betty Davis, perform. Wow. And of course, I didn't know that one day I would actually know, you know. But anyway, and she was amazing, like absolutely incredible. So he would make these clothes and they were mostly for him. And then if he could sell them at that time, you know, we were all kids and we were trying to look better. But we, nobody really had like any money and, he, and didn't even know what style we were going to be. I had a big afro. And uh, we, when we would go to the concerts, Gene was the first one that would borrow these clothes from Pat. And like a jacket, like a really, he was totally into these patchwork jackets. And they were like found parts. I remember Gene wore this, it was a leather patchwork jacket with like all sorts of stuff on it. And I was jealous because I was like, I can't believe you have a good jacket on like that when I'm here in my T-shirt and jeans going to these concerts. But anyway, you know, because you're trying to impress a lot of people as kids do. Anyway, so eventually I got my first job and I would just buy a shirt or something from him whenever I could. And um By the time I had left to go to New York, I had a couple pieces, but I had worn them so much, they were like pretty much worn out. So what I would do is when I came, I I, I regularly tried to get back to Philly once a month or so. And I remember telling him I wanted to look good for Miles. And the Miles thing happened so quickly. So Patrick told me that he would just mail me this jacket and it would get there in time. And uh, and it did. That's yeah. so cool. That is a great story. So now you're you're traveling on the road with Miles. You're traveling yeah. internationally. What are some of the things that you're doing? You're also probably discovering that Miles has an interest, perhaps, in developing his art, or he sees a, yeah. a relationship between music and visual art. I know that there have been a number of musicians like Duke Ellington who used to paint. There's also that phenomena called synesthesia where yes. the senses overlap, where some people yeah. can see colors, you know, when listening to sounds. Right. And I remember the, the video, I think the first one was Decoy. Yeah. That was done for by yeah. Columbia. And Miles was not too happy with that particular video, as I understand <laughs> it. But they made an attempt to try to show him playing and these yeah. colors and sounds and beats coming out. Did you talk with Miles about the relationship between sounds and colors and some of the things that uh, you were both doing or involved in? Um, To be honest, no. We talked a lot about art, but maybe I just never asked that question. Um, He would have answered it if I asked, but I never thought to ask about the relationship between music and art. A lot of my relationship with him 
uh, was allowing him to have the freedom to be able to tell me what he wanted to share. I spent the first year working with him on this book of his, the you know, this autobiography, and, and, and in a way, it was a collaboration between him and Quincy True, but mm-hmm. Quincy wasn't always around and couldn't be there, so he would give me a script of questions to ask Miles, and then that created like this dialogue. A lot of times I was felt like I was pulling his teeth out because he didn't always want to answer the questions when you ask them. So that's one of the reasons why if I sensed that his mind was somewhere else, I would keep a certain amount of even personal questions or things that I would want to know for myself at a minimum because he was always being asked to do something. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I came to find out that it was Doc Davis, Miles's father, uh, who was a dental surgeon that taught both Miles and Vernon, his younger brother, how to draw. And that if, if I I'm didn't correct, know that. Yes. And what I came to learn is that Sicily, Miles's wife. Yeah. After they got married, she purchased some drawing materials for him because she felt that it would be a positive creative outlet uh, for him. And I I asked her once about that. And, you know, she confirmed that that was that was the case. Uh, But one of the things that I heard him say was that Vernon could draw anything in front of him. He could draw real well. But what Miles had was imagination. And he felt that that was so important, not just in drawing, but also in music as well. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the kind of things that you would both do together in yeah. drawing or painting, the way that you collaborated. <laughs> it's a funny little twist to it. So I, I'm playing assistant and I'm trying to be as accurate and just doing everything the way that he wanted it done, that I actually was not thinking about art at all, of personal art. Mm. And I think I brought a sketchbook and I never did it. Draw, you know, it became like a, just a journal or a reminders to re- remind myself to do this and that for him. And so he was drawing all along. And then at a certain point, he started passing me his sketchbook and on planes and stuff. And he'd say, why don't you draw on this? And I said, no, 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 no. Now I was afraid. I didn't want to like have him hate it. So I would just say no. And he would kind of He'd give me like a look and take his book back. And then finally, (laughs) one day he would start saying, well, why aren't you drawing? I know you're an artist. Why aren't you painting or something? Because he would draw and paint every night, everywhere we went. And I said, well, I'm just too busy with all your stuff. You know, like I blurted (laughs) out. And he said, you got to be able to do more than one thing at one time. <laughs> and so I listened to him and I just said, well, okay. But I was still uncomfortable with the idea that what if I did something in my style and then he hates it? Because he really wanted me to work on the same painting that he was working on, not on a separate piece. So fast forward, shows are happening. They're lining up for shows for him. So there was one in Beverly Hills and there was one in Spain. So I was just perfectly happy with setting up his paints at night after a show and watching him paint, but also talking to him. That was like our real talking time. He would tell me stories about all the really funny stories from Billie Holiday to Dizzy and all of the different ones like Bird. 
So it was really fun that way. And I was perfectly happy not to make any art. But eventually what happened was we ended up in Malibu at his house. Mm-hmm. And Malibu is like, it was so quiet. All you heard was the waves mm. and you could literally hear anything. Like it was yeah. just that quiet. And of course he would have sound on either because he was watching a movie or something, but it was really his time to kind of relax and do nothing in a way, or he would paint, but then he would just sleep a lot more. It was like, he didn't like California, by the way. He, he mostly thought that it was too boring, but <laughs> this one particular night, it's a stopover. We're going to be there for three days and then we're going to Tokyo. So there was a big painting on the table. He had this big gigantic square dining room table that became like his painting table. And he's working on his paint or he did the background for it. So then he like looks at me. I'm just sort of wide eyed, not sleepy at all or anything. Mm -hmm. And he says, I'm going to bed. Why don't you work on that painting over there? And then I said, "Uh, "Okay, (laughs) I'm not going to do that. Like I'm thinking this in my head. I'm not doing that. But have a good night, chief. Sometimes we call (laughs) them chief. And so, <laughs> and so then he goes to bed and then I'm sitting there and something just like sort of says, you know what, why don't you just do something? He's not even going to be here to watch over you. And, you know, you're, you know I'm going to be free about it and I'm not going to care because he's not here. And if he hates it, all right, well, now he'll never ask me again. So <laughs> I start to paint on it and I'm painting and I'm painting. And it's about like maybe 11 o'clock when he goes to bed. and it literally, the sun comes up. Like I like get lost in the zone. Yeah, yeah. And then I'm looking at it and I'm going, oh, I better go to bed because he's going to wake me up in a little while. (laughs) So I run up to my room, I kind of go to bed and then I wake up and it's like noontime. And I'm like, what? I don't, he didn't call me. He didn't knock on my door. Like what's going on? So I, I wake up, jump in the shower, grab my clothes, run downstairs. And he looks up at me and he's like, oh, slept in late, huh? <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, I'm sorry about that. I, and then he, he sort of looks over his shoulder because the table's to his back. And he says, that painting is a MF. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, Michael, now you're spending time with him. I think you're both not only painting together, but you're also exhibiting at the Nerlino Gallery, for example. Yeah. Uh, that was just a year before he passed. Uh, you're yeah. in Germany and in Switzerland. Tell us uh, some of the things, because I want to really get into the development of you, the artist. What's the takeaway from your experience with Miles in terms of your own trajectory as an artist? First and foremost, I had never met anyone that had the ability to be able to create and think about creating every single day. Mm. I mean, I saw a little bit of that with some teachers and, but I never saw anyone with that kind of intensity. You know, obviously he had ways and means to do so, but he would move from one medium to the other all in the same day, every day. Mm. And there was this thirst to learn thirst to keep learning, thirst to know more, thirst to sort of dig deeper. And I could see that. And I, 
uh, you know, I just learned a bunch of tricks in art school, like how to mix cadmium red with like some mediums and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But I actually didn't have a sense of my real true self at that time. Mm. And the only thing that I really regret was that I wasn't mature enough to pick up more from that experience with him. It came later. Yeah, I fortunately have a good memory. So a lot of what he taught me actually came much later to me. I should have been actually trying to learn it then. So out of that takeaway of knowing him, I actually learned to put down all of the techniques and stuff that I learned and then reinvent myself in a way. But the reinventing of all of that, the core was there. It was just very shallow at the in the beginning. I had to understand more of who I was, and I had to grow into that. And I had to actually almost cast away the idea of actually being liked. Uh, we make uh, work that we want to be like. A lot of people are like that. And I get it. I even remembered now, even things he said to band musicians. I never really completely understood this, but when he told me, about his banning girlfriends of band musicians when they were at practice. And he said this thing, which I, at the time, I was still too immature to kind of understand that those were distractions because they're going to play things that they think that their loved ones are going to like instead of like actually getting into the real core and the mechanics and and going into self. They're going to do something cool that they think the girlfriend's going to go, oh, my gosh, she's the best bass player I ever heard. You know, right. Like, did you hear what did? So I get it now. There's so much of that tied into our egos and there's so much tied into us wanting to be like through these little tricks that we know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> One of the things that I've and I've had the honor, Mikhail, of exhibiting with you seeing the layers, the varying dimensions of your work. It's so deep and vast and universal, you know, from the particular to the universal. Thank you. Absolutely. And can you tell us, where are you right now in terms of your own artistic practice? You've certainly had quite a number of shows this past year. Can you talk about that experience? What is life for you now as an artist? It's never been more... I'm an old man now. And it's like, it's never been more like sort of um, people are like more interested in me now than I've ever been in my whole life with the art. And I feel very blessed by that. Uh, I didn't see it coming. Now, we could write it off as certain events have pushed it in that direction. And I do think there's some truth to that. Black Lives Matter and unfortunately on the backs of like some really horrible incidents has caused protests and things like that. And, I, you know, who knows if it'll last? I mean, you know, I want it to last and I want to believe that it will last and that it will be better from this point on. Um, there have been some points in history where there was a glimpse of this before and then mm-hmm. it sort of disappeared. But what's happening now is, is that institutions are now trying to find Black curators, uh, Black and Brown curators, and and LGBT as well. And they're trying to sort of bring them into the mix of what art history is. And I think that that is a noble idea if they stick to it. Because let's face it, 
if it's only like for a few years, it'll just sort of subside again. And then they'll have to start all over when a whole bunch of new incidents happen. But so I'm actually hopeful this time. But in that mix is where all of a sudden people are interested in like, hey, you know, where did you come from? Like, in fact, some (laughs) have even asked that. And my answer, which wasn't original, but I thought I was being funny and a little bit original because I then Googled it. Turns out Faith Ringel said the same exact thing. And it was just like, hey, I've always been here making art. You just weren't looking. (laughs) Amen. That's real. That's real. Mikhail, do you have any advice for up and coming artists? You're now an older artist and you're an inspiration to succeeding generations can you can you speak to them to the aspiring artist who's looking toward you and what advice you would give well the first thing is ask yourself the question is is this really what i want to do and am i willing to do it if it brings me nothing Mm. other than just personal growth and if that's the case then do it and then go after it with the verb and the passion, but also try to understand as many parts of the puzzle as possible. Have a back, not a backup plan as far as another career, but a second place that you can, you know, it might be teaching, it might some way to support yourself. One of the things that I think is best with why my work might resonate at the moment, and even that's kind of like possibly changing because. I've been talking to people. I'm learning new things now myself. And one of the things is, is that once you sign with the gallery and a gallery sells your work, they really want you to make the same thing, the same painting over mm. and over again. Mm-hmm. I am now just starting to have some galleries that are reaching out to me. So they're interested in the work that I've already made. But I can imagine like a little bit down the line, they're going to say, and I'm talking to other seasoned artists that have already had this problem, that they, when they changed their style, their galleries were very disappointed in them because it was no longer what they thought that they could sell. Wow. And, and so I am not that guy. I, just, I made a decision a long time ago. The one thing that I made a decision to do is not to allow someone to dictate to me and what I was going to make. And that I wanted to go with my instincts and my gut. And I think that it's been a good decision because I've also been put in a position or two throughout my life. I have enough different stories where I made work with the idea of selling because I listened to someone else who says, well, I know you must want to make some money at art, right? And then I sort of said, well, what's wrong with me? Why don't I want to make, why am I like not doing this? You know, I I do need money. And then when I did it, I look back and if someone brings up that painting, I just like want to like hide. Mm. So I have made some bad work out there because it really wasn't me. I was making something for someone else. Mm -hmm. So what I would say to any young artist is believe in yourself. If you really, really want to do this, you've got to believe in yourself, but lose the ego. Just be an intelligent, in-tune person. And I think it can work. Wow. Wow. That's fantastic. I'm curious, as 
a native Philadelphian, what you think about the state of art in the city today? I know that Philadelphia has long been known for the murals and, and having the most murals of any city in the world. But now there's also, especially since the pandemic has started to hit, a resurgence of graffiti culture in, yeah. in a big way throughout Philadelphia right now. Um, and yeah. then a lot of other up and coming artists and muralists as well, especially with the way mural arts is also now expanding its footprint in the city too. I'm curious yeah. to know what you think about the future of art in Philadelphia, as well as the present tense. I mean, you know, when I first came back to Philadelphia, I first worked for mural arts for a little while. It was the first one of the first recommended places that any artist should go to. Mm. And they were accepting, you know, ideas. Now, I worked in their summer recreation programs. I never ended up working on a mural. There were so many people ahead of me and in line, and then there were all the financial issues, and they were nowhere near as big as they are now. And that mm. fellow, one of the fellowships that I got last year was through Mural Arts. So I've been talking to them, and now perhaps I'll make a mural at some point. Could happen. But it's a completely different world. You know, there's not a lot of murals that are painted anymore. They're, they actually like sort of print them on this sort of uh, material. Now, I mm -hmm. like the graffiti art because I, that feels more real. And uh, certainly they, any of the mural arts things are going to enhance the neighborhood. Right, right. But the graffiti stuff is more interesting to me because it just feels like more sort of more like real and Mm -hmm. And the real isn't the word, but, you know, it feels like real pure to me, I think. Yeah, and yeah. more from the soul in a yes. way. Yes. And then it's funny. I have like, uh, do you know Ursula Rucker? Yes, yes. And I'm cool with her son, uh, Sudan, as well. Sudan. Oh, Green. yes. So she was in, I saw her yesterday. And nice. she has this project that's like now opening up in Washington. I think it's going to go on to New York. But it's in Las Vegas and it's called Art House. And it's mm -hmm. this visual experience using her voice in the background. And it's sort of it's an interactive sort of thing. And it's in Washington, D.C. Wow. I would like to see mural arts going more in a direction of things that are visual interactions mm -hmm. and that they're not just on a wall. Mm -hmm. And I think it can be done. I am interested in trying to take painting to like another like level. Like, okay, so she's talking about as yesterday, she was telling me that it's like really taking a modern approach to history, the history of African Americans, basically. And it's through this sort of 3Dism and all these things. But I would like to be able to, to see art become more of that. As beautiful as what mural arts is doing, it's very sort of like uh, basic to me now. I yeah. think I, I would like to see more. Absolutely. Yeah. The other thing tying back to Miles is Miles taught me this idea that we're all creative one way or another. But if you happen to be someone that's drawn to music and you know visual things, then you really you really should live it. That's your truth. Yeah. And you can leave your footprint in a way through that. So what I, where I am right now is trying to leave in whatever time I have left a footprint that speaks less about me, but more about this world at large that we're in and cleaning it up. You know, black and brown people, we're also getting this uh, criticism about like, well, why are so many black and brown artists creating like just figuration? 
And I love abstraction, by the way, and I am trying to integrate the two together because I actually don't see the difference, to be honest, but I know other people do, but I don't. I actually see them almost equally the same. But the thing is, is that I think it's mostly the answer I would give is, is that there's never been that much imagery of us throughout history. It's all been changed. I mean, look, they've done it with the American and the Native Americans. They've done it in film. I mean, Elizabeth Taylor was Cleopatra. I mean, okay, so so we don't have enough of that. And I get it, That's, that's why we need to do this now. We can move on to pure abstraction completely, but I get why so many artists are doing it because it's like this chance to be able to express beauty and emotion and all these things by really looking at a dark-skinned person, you know? Yeah, just because we're denied, have been denied it for so long. I mean, look, I know, you know, I've said, and I have a lot of friends that are, that are not black and brown too, or Mm -hmm. I won't say a lot. I have a few friends, but Mm -hmm. it's like, I have to ask myself, why do I know so much more about you than you know about me? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I wanted to say, Mikhail, that your work, the character of your work, I think of Charles White. Oh my gosh. I don't mean in the same style. Yeah, yeah. But what your work and many artists that work with figuration embodies is dignity. Thank you. So I want to thank you for bringing not only that dignity to the fore for us to celebrate, but also that light of inspiration. Because we are definitely inspired by your work and also by you, the person, Mikhail Ilam. And we just want to thank you so much for taking the time to share with us this part of your journey, uh, the people that you've encountered along the way, uh, and can't thank you enough for this time. Thank you. If you if we stay on here any longer, you're going to bring me to tears. So <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, definitely look forward to seeing your work in some upcoming shows. Are there any shows that are going to be coming up throughout the rest of 2022 or even in 23 that you might be aware of that you could share with the audience? Uh, well, at the moment, there's one piece at the Woodmere Art Museum. What's coming up is I'm supposed to be showing a solo show in Detroit. I just sent some pieces to this new gallery called Blackbird. Um, oh, I have a show coming up. This is like kind of a quick thing, but it's in Westchester at the Art Trust. And that's going to be in August. It's not a solo show. It's an actual two-person show. Uh, I can't think beyond that at the moment. <laughs> all good, all good. You know, there's definitely yeah. going to be more in the future too. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you.